Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Today is the 20th of May, 2019. My name is Matthew Chute. I'm Chute Chi. Coming to you now is the Climate Buddha. I'm doing commentary on an article that has been recently published, Saturday, May 18th, 2019. Someone by the name of Gaia Vince, G-A-I-A Vince, has taken the risk of actually writing about the climate crisis, and it's in The Guardian. I'll have that attached to this article. I'm going to do something a little different than I've done before. I'm actually going to read the article and make comments about it as it goes, because in many cases, I'm unable to remember the each line-by-line -line problem with these articles. And I've decided to put some time into this one with you, and we're going to go line-by-line, line, and I'm going to stop at various cases, and I'll explain to you what is actually going on. But Gaia's effort here is outstanding, and the author's work here is not to be in any way discredited by my efforts over and above theirs, because this is a very good article. Okay, we're going to start now. Drowned cities, stagnant seas, intolerable heat waves, entire nations uninhabitable, and more than 11 billion humans. A four-degree warmer world is the stuff of nightmares, and yet that's where we are heading in just decades. Governments mull various carbon targets aimed at keeping human-induced global heating within safe levels, including new ambitions to reach net-zero emissions by 2050. It's worth looking ahead pragmatically at what happens if we fail. After all, many scientists think it's highly unlikely that we will stay below 2C, above pre-industrial levels, by the end of the century, let alone 1.5C. Most countries are not making anywhere near enough progress to meet these internationally agreed targets. Okay, first off, is that's the first major problem, is that we are currently at 1.75 degrees over industrial baseline, or some of that general area, worldwide average temperature. It goes up and down. I want you to know that this is about math and statistics to some extent, but the idea that we're around 1.5 is just not true. This is a major lie that's been uh, put forth, is that there are different baselines from which we've been calculating these numbers. But there's also something called the aerosol masking effect, which cools the globe. And if we take the aerosol masking effect out, and we look at the overall heating, it's much higher. That's one of the reasons why our climate sensitivity issues are, are kind, of, kind of wild. But let's, let's go back here. Climate models predict we are currently on track for a heating of somewhere between 3C and 4C for 2100. Although, bear in mind that these are global average temperatures at the poles. Okay, once again, you know, uh, this is a, another concern about 3 and 4 degrees by 2100. The, the, the uh, adjusted exponential math um, reinforcing feedback truth of how the climate is actually unfolding are showing that 3 and 4C could be happening in a very short time, less than a decade. And But again, this lie that it's out in 2100 is another mass-level lie that's discussed, and that you can't avoid it, by the way. So even a good researcher who's trying to do a good job will run into these, these estimates. And overland, where people live, the increase may be double that. Predictions are tricky. However, as temperatures depend on how sensitive the climate is to carbon dioxide, CO2, most models assume that it is not very sensitive. That's where the lower 3C comes from. But a whole new set of models to be published in 2021 finds much greater sensitivity. 
They put heating at around 5C by the end of the century, meaning people could be experiencing as much as 10C of heating over land. All right, this is where she, the author does a fantastic job of, of describing the old worldview of temperature increase with a new reality involving the new research coming to bear and being placed into the computer models for climate change. Drowned cities, stagnant Oops. seas, okay. intolerant... Right. We're going to have to do a little bit more um, ad hoc editing. And now, next section. Such uncertainty isn't ideal, but for our purposes, let's plump for an entirely feasible planetary heating of 4C by the end of the century. If that seems a long time away, consider that plenty of people you know will be around then. My children will be in their 80s, perhaps with middle-aged children and grandchildren. We are making their world and it will be a very different place. Four degrees may not sound like much, after all. It is less than a typical temperature change between night and day. It might even sound pleasant, like retiring from the UK to southern Spain. However, an average heating of the entire globe by 4C would render the planet unrecognizable from anything humans have ever experienced. The last time the world was this hot was 15 meters years ago during the Miocene, when intense volcanic eruptions in western North America emitted vast quantities of CO2. Sea levels rose some 40 meters higher than today and lush forests grew in Antarctica and the Arctic. However, that global heating took place over many thousands of years. Even at its most rapid, the rise in CO2 emissions occurred at a rate 1,000 times slower than ours has since the start of the Industrial Revolution. That gave animals and plants time to adapt to new conditions and, crucially, ecosystems had not been degraded by humans. Now you have a fantastic... Uh you know, a graphic here. We're showing what the effects of a four degree rise in global average temperature really is. And, you know, this is again massively underestimating it. It's very good effort, uh, but massively underestimating the damage. There's this thing about average temperature. So like there's there's a certain amount of gigajoules of, of energy and heat that are just sitting in our atmosphere. There's a, there's a measure, a physics measure, telling us just what that latent heat energy is. Okay? That's just our average latent heat energy just sitting in our atmosphere. To move that up a couple of degrees Fahrenheit, a couple of de one degree Celsius, to move that up average means we have to add energy to the system. And the energy, if you saw the numbers, the physics numbers, there's a website devoted to this that says, you know, these are nuclear bombs degree of heat. There's literally billions and billions of nuclear bombs worth of heat that have to be added to the atmosphere for it to go up one degree. This math problem makes the entire describing the climate change problem extremely difficult for those of us who see the math and say, wait a minute, we cannot handle one degree average increase at all. That's too much heat. What are they going to do with it? It's going to turn into storms or whatever. Things look considerably bleaker for our 2100 world. The past decade, scientists have been able to produce a far more nuanced picture of how temperature rise affects the complexities of cloud cover and atmospheric and oceanic circulation patterns and ecology. We are looking at vast dead zones in the oceans as nutrients from fertilizer runoff combine with warmer waters to produce an explosion in algae that starve marine life of oxygen. 
This will be exacerbated by the acidity from dissolved CO2, which will cause a mass die-off, particularly of shellfish, plankton and coral. We will have lost all the reefs decades before 2100 at somewhere between 2C and 4C, says Johann Rockström, director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Germany. Sign up to the green light email to get the planet's most important stories. Read more sea levels will be perhaps two meters higher and, more worryingly, we will be well on our way to an ice-free world. Having passed the tipping points for the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheets, committing us to at least 10 meters of sea level rise in coming centuries. That's because as ice sheets melt, <coughs> sea level rise issues happen to be one of the most um, difficult to really get a handle on for for how long it takes to you know melt a, a solid block of a mile thick ice. That's the physics question. We don't know Greenland's rates of melting, but we all know they are happening so much quicker. And these sea level rise issues that we've kicked down the, 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 the street and said, don't worry about it, it's just kick the can, don't worry about it, it's years off. We'll see. Things look considerably bleaker for our 2100 world. So we have to go back here. Sorry for the ad hoc editing. Sea levels will be perhaps two meters higher and more worryingly, we will be well on our way to an ice-free world. Having passed the tipping points for the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheets, committing us to at least 10 meters of sea level rise in coming centuries. That's because as ice sheets melt, their surface drops to a lower altitude where it is warmer, speeding up melting in a runaway feedback loop. Eventually, dark, heat-absorbing land is exposed, speeding the melting process even more. 1100, we will also have lost most low-latitude glaciers, including two-thirds of the so-called third pole of the Hindu Kush Karakoram Himalayan mountains and Tibetan plateau that feeds many of Asia's important rivers. However, most rivers, especially in Asia, will flood more often, according to research by Richard Betts, head of climate impacts at the Met Office Hadley Center, because the hotter atmosphere will produce more intense monsoons, violent storms and extreme rainfall. His studies predict a wide equatorial belt of high humidity that will cause intolerable heat stress across most of tropical Asia, Africa, Australia and the Americas, rendering them uninhabitable for much of the year. Tropical forests of heat-tolerant species may well thrive in this wet zone with the high CO2 concentrations, especially with the disappearance of human infrastructure and agriculture, although the conditions will probably favor Liana's vines. Over. <coughs> that was an interesting... You know, comment, you know, tropical forests of the heat-tolerant species may well thrive in this wet zone with high CO2 concentrations, especially with the disappearance of human infrastructure and agriculture, because this is what really ends up happening with these radical changes in climate. Sea levels will be perhaps two meters higher and, more worryingly,
Tropical forests of heat-tolerant species may well thrive in this wet zone with the high CO2 concentrations, especially with the disappearance of human infrastructure and agriculture, although the conditions will probably favor lianas, vines, over slower growing trees, Bet says. To the south and north of this humid zone, bands of expansive desert will also rule out agriculture and human habitation. Some models predict that desert conditions will stretch from the Sahara right up through South and Central Europe, drying rivers including the Danube and the Rhine. As in cooperating as never before, decoupling the political map from geography in South America, the picture is more complicated. Increased precipitation could enhance the Amazon rainforest, leading to mightier river flow. Other models predict a weakening of the easterlies over the Atlantic, drying the Amazon, increasing fires and turning it from forest to grassland. The tipping point for the Amazon could well be triggered by deforestation, while the intact forest could cope with some drought because it generates and maintains its own moist ecosystem. Areas that have been opened up through degradation allow moisture to escape. A combination of climate change and deforestation could push it into a savanna state, Rockstrom says. Advertisement. All of nature will be affected by the change in climate, ecosystems and hydrology and there will be plenty of extinctions as species struggle to migrate and adapt to an utterly changed world. Daniel Rothman, co-director of MIT's Lawrence Center, calculates that 2100 will herald the beginning of Earth's sixth mass extinction event. But what about us? This is undoubtedly a more hostile, dangerous world for humanity, which by 2100 will number around 11 billion all of whom will need food, water, power and somewhere to live. It will be, in a giant understatement, problematic. The good news is that humans won't become extinct. The species can survive with just a few hundred individuals. The bad news is, we risk great loss of life and perhaps the end of our civilizations. Many of the places where people live and grow food will no longer be suitable for either. Higher sea levels will make today's low-lying islands and many coastal regions where nearly half the global population live, uninhabitable, generating an estimated 2 billion refugees by 2100. Bangladesh alone will lose one-third of its land area, including its main breadbasket. From 2030, more than half the population will live in the tropics, an area that makes up a third of the planet and already struggles with climate impacts. Yet by 2100, most of the low and mid-latitudes will be uninhabitable because of heat stress or drought. Despite stronger precipitation, the hotter soils will lead to faster evaporation and most populations will struggle for fresh water. We will have to live on a smaller land surface with a larger population. So this was a very straightforward and dry description of extinction of our species. Uh, and and the, the, the idea of... Uh, this Mr. Rockstrom's Rockstrom is he's he's quoting of this being an understatement is just simply is simply they're not telling you the truth how quickly this is coming. The evidence for this coming within less than a decade exists. There are certainly circumstantial prob, uh, probabilities to say that this could happen in less than t- before 2100. So I'm going to read the last few paragraphs here to avoid the uh, uh, continued going back and forth with a computer. Um, from 2030, more than half the population will live in the tropics, an area that makes up a third of the planet and already struggles with climate impacts. Yet, by 2100, most of the low and mid-latitudes will be uninhabitable because of heat stress or drought. 
Despite stronger precipitation, the hotter soils will lead to faster evaporation and most populations will struggle for fresh water. We will have to live in a smaller land surface with a larger population. Indeed, the consequences of a 4C warmer world are so terrifying that most scientists would rather not contemplate them, let alone work out a survival strategy. Rockstum doesn't like our chances. It's difficult to see how we could accommodate a billion or even half of that, he says. There will be a rich minority of people who survive with modern lifestyles, no doubt, but it will be a turbulent, conflict-ridden world. He points out that if we already use nearly half the world's ice-free surface to produce food for 7 billion people, he thinks meeting the needs of 11 billion in such a hostile conditions would be impossible. The reasons is primarily making enough food, but also we could have lost the biodiversity we're dependent on to be facing a cocktail of negative shocks all the time from fires to droughts. Others of Moshanjin, I don't think that humans as a species or even industrial civilization is seriously threatened, says Ken Calderia, climatologist at the Carnegie Institute of Science in California. People live in Houston, Miami, and Atlanta because they live in air conditioning through the hot summers. If, our, if people are rich enough to air condition their lives, they can watch whatever the successor to the Game of Thrones on TV is as their natural world decays around them, he says. But he points out that while richer people risk a loss to the quality of life, the poor risk their actual lives. So how might we give all of humanity the best chance? Our best hope lies in cooperating as never before to radically re reorganize our world, decoupling the political map from geology, decoupling the political map from geography. However unrealistic it sounds, we need to look at a world afresh and see it in terms of where the resources are and then plan the population food and energy production around that. It would mean abandoning huge tracts of the globe and moving Earth's human population to high latitudes, Canada, Siberia, parts of Greenland, Patagonia, Tasmania, New Zealand, perhaps newly ice-free parts of the western Antarctic coast. If we allow 20 square million uh, of space per person, if we allow 20 square meters of space per person, more than double the minimum habitable space allowed per person under English planning regulations, 11 billion people would need 220,000 square kilometer of land to live on. The area of Canada alone is 9.9 .9 million square kilometer, combined with all other high latitude areas such as Alaska, Britain, Russia, Scandinavia, there should be plenty of room for everyone. These precious lands with tolerable temperatures and access to water would also be valuable food growing areas, as well as the last oasis for many species. So people would need to be housed in compact, efficient, high-rise cities with reflective roofs and resource recycling systems that risk raising local temperatures to intolerant levels because compact cities function as heat islands. So solar-powered cooling or even artificial winds would be needed to counteract this. There's also an increased risk of epidemics in such densely populated spaces. Peter Cox, a climatologist from the University of Exeter, thinks this is a, this, this viable but would require a massive program of infrastructure to manage waste, air, quality, and water needs. 
City-scale underground reservoirs would supply domestic needs and efficient recycling would keep water and other resources circulating the population for years rather than hours. Post-fossil fuels, we will require unprecedented electricity production. This could come from vast arrays of solar and wind-powered plants that belt across in uninhabitable desert regions. High-voltage direct current transmission lines could relay this power to the cities or it could be stored as thermal energy in molten salts and transported in hydrogen after solar energy is used to split water and produce hydrogen fuel cells. Hydrogen production will be on an industrial scale and it could be used for non-electric transport, for instance, wave farms, nuclear fission, and potentially fusion. And solar power will help milk the, the, our electricity needs. In the meantime, the effective capture from the air of today's carbon emissions will, with luck, be a reality. We, we can be stored or used in the manufactured materials. Food production will need to be more intensive, efficient, and industrial. This will be mostly a vegetarian world, largely devoid of fish without grazing areas for resources for livestock, poultry, may be viable on the edges of farmland and synthetic meats and other foods will meet some of the demand. Heat-tolerant, drought-resistant crop varieties such as cassava, millet, will replace many of our current unmodified staples such as rice and wheat. And they'll grow faster with greater water efficiency because of the high CO2 levels. <gasps> the one problem is that almost all of our agriculture will be in the higher latitudes because the tropics will be too dry and too hot for farm workers. And that means less land and less sunlight and water. Global agriculture could be limited by the geometry of the Earth's orbit around the sun, Cox says. However, studies have shown that crops thrive with artificial light delivered by LEDs at exactly the right frequencies for photosynthesis. This means we could grow crops through the winter months, hydroponically in smaller spaces, stacked up in warehouses or even underground, leaving valuable land surfaces for other uses. Cultivation of algae mats and crops grown in floating platforms in the marshlands can also contribute while crops could potentially be grown in uninhabitable regions farmed and processed remotely by artificial farms. Either way, we need to use far more precise nutrient and irrigation systems to avoid polluting more fertile ecosystems and reduce food loss and waste. A foresee warmer world may well be survival, but it would be eminently poorer than the one we currently enjoy. Rockstrom believes it takes us beyond our adaptation capabilities. Delivering our children to such a deadly home is a horrifying proposition. Given what's at stake, it may be worth deploying geoengineering tools which reflect the sun's heat away from Earth and so keep global heating to safe levels. This wouldn't address the problem of dissolving carbon killing ocean life, but it could buy us more time to decarbonize and achieve negative emissions. Crucially, keeping Earth cooler for longer would help the poorest people adapt. We've come to a point where different forms of geoengineering cannot be excluded, admits Rockstrom. But solar radiation management is a very dangerous geopolitical tool to deploy. Who decides which part of the globe to shade? How we govern it? We've already warmed the world by 1.1 C. And we're experiencing the effects. The International Federation Red Cross estimates there are as many as 50 million climate refugees. Once we reach 4C, most models agree it will be impossible to return to today's abundant world. For me, the issue is, is that we are transforming and simplifying our world for many thousands of years into the future with millennia of sea level rises, acidified oceans, and intolerant tropical temperatures just because we weren't willing to pay the small difference between fossil fuel prosperity and prosperity fueled by non-greenhouse gas emitting energy systems, says Caldera. 
We are now making the climb of 2100 and however hard it seems to meet our emission targets, it'll be far harder for our children if we don't. With international cooperation regulation, we can make it livable. My name is Matthew Chute. I'm the Climate Buddha. I just read an article uh, published in The Guardian. Uh, it was read on my computer as well. And it's written by uh, Gaia Vince, Saturday, May 18th. And I, I, I want to point out that the section that I actually read, where I wasn't letting the computer you know, read it, was really about the optimistic plan. The optimistic plan involves the idea that we can replace fossil fuels with a decent energy system and that we can run the place more sanely and all these things and that all of this optimism is really based on having a deep fundamental change. A deep fundamental change and a deep fundamental change very quickly. I've been publishing what I call the solution to the uh, climate crisis. I think mathematically the solution to the climate crisis is extremely difficult. Uh, we are facing mathematical difficulties in reducing CO2, uh, the mathematical problems of rising worldwide heat and what that really is going to do. This article was filled with the hope that we'll just get through these three or four degrees of temperature increase in short periods of time and there'll be no problems. There'll be no problems if the absolute everybody on the entire planet picks up picks up their uh, handheld device and dials in the climate Buddha and listens to what I have to say right now. We are facing a worldwide catastrophic change in temperature, and that worldwide catastrophic change in temperature is going to have victims. We have to move to a system to deal with the difficult questions that we're going to be facing as populations are, are, are going to be looking at not enough food, resources to, to survive and thrive. We're going to be looking at a huge animal and plant infrastructure that needs to be saved species by species. In any way that we can, we're looking at migrations of people that has never been imagined. We need to use the genius of computers, and we need to make good decisions, scientific-based social decisions based on resource allocation, based on things that need to be done in the face of abrupt climate change. The universal alignments are the first effort to come forth and say, wait a minute, we need to do something right now. We have no other choices but to face the consequences of our actions. So everything must stop. The first thing is we've got to get to inner peace, where we've got to realize that stopping instead of growing, that the basic paradigm of capitalism in practically all tribes and religions everywhere is to grow. So stopping growth understanding that there has got to be a way to run the place, run the place well, that's not dependent upon growth. The next thing is, is to end all of humanity's games. There's just so many games that we're playing. We're just having fun, exciting things in our world. Work, for most people, is a game. It's a billionaire's game. We can stop games and realize that we're not playing these games because we're, we have to. We're playing them because we're choosing to. And the games that we need to play 
is number one is creating is understanding that everybody gets cared for. We need enlightened compassion at a level that has never been imagined. Everybody gets cared for. And if you do, if you do want to contribute to society, you've got to make joy for all with less. There will, will be no poverty with the universal alignments fully implemented. The end of poverty everywhere is the most important thing we can do because we're talking about refugee populations initially. And then we have to involve the entire society, the entire world with enlightened discipline that we work together to solve two problems and that we allocate any extra resources that we have for other generations for only those two problems. So we're functioning from inner peace to attain outer peace with enlightened compassion and enlightened effort using enlightened discipline and enlightened giving. And that's what we got to go with. And we're going to go out struggling against the odds, mathematically difficult to overcome prop climate change, to win in the face of odds that don't look good. I have hashtag instant radical change, realizing that there comes a time where you're done playing the game and the buzzer sounds and it's time to move on to a new game. Instant radical change says that we can pick that time and there's enough computers and there's enough social systems to tell us what to do when it comes time to make that time. Hashtag distribute power says a deeply technocratic fully distributed democratic grid can make policy. We can all vote on what to do with our military. We can all vote on what to do with our collective money. No longer are we handing policy over to a bunch of suits who've discovered the Rosetta Stone of communication and have convinced us to vote for them. This doesn't work. Number three, we move on to uh, beyond uh, distribute power to an understanding that once you understand the reality of climate change, and this author in The Guardian understands just how important climate change is, there is nothing else other than environment. There has always been the God nature. There has always been the understanding that we are part of the earth. There has always been that understanding until industrial society took us away from that. And here I am saying that we used our soil, our air, and our water, and now we are facing a crisis that each day that passes that if it's not hitting you, if there's no weather crisis where you are, if there's no environmental crisis, nothing going on where you are, then that's a good day. Because every day that's not a climate apocalypse is a good day. I'm telling you, the evidence, I'm telling you, the math, I'm telling you, as the climate Buddha, that the honest situation is worse than the article that The Guardian showed here just worse. Things are going to be happening a lot faster. But it's a great article to read. My name is Matthew Chute. I hope you enjoyed this podcast.
Join, take a look at me, Patreon. Sponsor me. Call me up. Write me a check. I need. I need support. Thanks.